0: Well, hello there and
1: welcome to the show. Just to to get it right out there on the table at the very beginning, the battle for your mind is real, but I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to invite you to think clearly and independently, come to your own conclusions. And uh, you know, this is going to require engaging in some wrong think. Why? Because there are narratives and dominant uh, mindsets that are being pushed upon us day in and day out. Some of them may be something you would choose to embrace, and that's fine. But uh, there's a lot of coercion. And I'm one of those people who is, uh, I don't know, I'm really pro-freedom, like for everybody. <laughs> I want everybody to be able to use their conscience, use their noggin, and, uh, and basically think for themselves. So if you have come here seeking a little courage, a little camaraderie, you're in the right place. Pull up a chair. And we'll revel in wrongthink. So one of the questions I want to begin with today is what's behind the full-court press to teach critical race theory in our children's schools? And I think I actually saw a story yesterday. I I didn't get a chance to really delve into this, but I saw the headline that uh, the, the Biden administration is proposing an idea that would mandate the teaching of critical race theory in our nation's public schools. Well, that didn't take very long. I mean... Why is this such an important thing? Why is wokeness becoming the hallmark? This is the the outward signal for corporations, for institutions. It's, I don't know, it strikes me as, as less about, hey, we're just trying to correct some problems, and more about, no, we're trying to impose an absolutist, totalitarian way of thinking on as many people as possible. Which, if, if that's your goal, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not trying to be rude here, but, gee, what better place to to push that kind of thing than in a classroom where you have a captive audience, where you have young minds that are struggling and trying to make sense of the world and, you know, a helpful adult or authority figure telling them, well, this is what you need to believe. Let's just say it'll go over pretty easy. Well, some parents are apparently getting more than just a little bit fed up. Uh saw an article published yesterday. This is from Barry Weiss. A New York father pulls his daughter out of a very elite private school because he's sick and tired of them pushing this woke, critical race theory ideology on his daughter. Now, just to give you some background, this is a a parent named Andrew Gutman, and his daughter apparently attends the the Brerley School. Very elite. It's a private all-girls school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. $54,000 a year to send your kid there. This ain't cheap education. Prospective families apparently have to take an anti-racism pledge, though, to be even considered for admission. And uh, Barry Weiss, in reporting on this, spoke to a few of the the Breerly parents, but Gudman chose to pull his daughter out of this school. She's been in there since kindergarten. She's been attending it for seven years. And then he sent a letter to all 600 or so families in the school earlier this week. And I want to share with you the text of this letter. And it's possibly one of the most courageous and well-thought-out things I have, I've seen in a long time. But I want you to hear this from the standpoint of, where would you draw the line? Where would you speak up, knowing full well that by opposing this school's anti-racism initiatives, you're opening yourself up to serious criticism. I don't think in any way this makes you know, this, this man a, a, a racist. Again, his name is Andrew Gutman. This is what he had to say. He said, Dear fellow Brerley parents, Our family recently made the decision not to re enroll our daughter at Brearly for the 2021 2022 school year. She's been at Brearley for seven years, beginning in kindergarten. In short, we no longer believe that Brearley's administration and board of trustees have any of our children's best interests at heart. Moreover, He says, we no longer have confidence that our daughter will receive the quality of education necessary to further her development into a critically thinking, responsible, enlightened, and civic-minded adult. And so he says, I write to you as a fellow parent to share our reasons for leaving the Brearley community, but also to urge you to act before the damage to the school, to its community, and to your own child's education is irreparable. And he just dives right in from here. You may want to pull up a chair if your if your knees get weak from hearing truth without any kind of sugarcoating. He says it cannot be stated clearly enough, or strongly enough, rather, that Breerly's obsession with race must stop. It should be abundantly clear to any thinking parent that Breerly has completely lost its way. The administration the board of trustees have displayed a cowardly and appalling lack of leadership by appeasing an anti-intellectual, illiberal mob and then allowing the school to be captured by that same mob. Now he says, what follows are my own personal views on Brearley's anti-racism initiatives, but these are just a handful of the criticisms I know other parents have expressed. He says, I object to the view that I should be judged by the color of my skin. I cannot tolerate a school that not only judges my daughter by the color of her skin, but encourages and instructs her to prejudge others by theirs. By viewing every element of education, every aspect of history, every facet of society through the lens of skin color and race, he says, we are desecrating the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and utterly violating the movement for which such civil, readers, civil rights leaders rather believed, fought, and died. He says, I object to the charge of systemic racism in this country and at our school. Systemic racism, properly understood, is segregated schools separate lunch counters. It's the interning of Japanese and the exterminating of Jews. Systemic racism is unequivocally not a small number of isolated incidences over a period of decades. Ask any girl of any race if they've ever experienced insults from friends, have ever felt slighted by teachers, or have ever suffered the occasional injustice from a school at which they've spent up to 13 years of their life, and you're bound to hear some grievances, some petty, some not. He says, we have not had systemic racism against blacks in this country since the civil rights reforms of the 1960s, a period of more than 50 years. To state otherwise is a flat-out misrepresentation of our country's history and adds no understanding to any of today's societal issues. If anything, long-standing and widespread policies such as affirmative action point in precisely the opposite direction. He says, I object to a definition of systemic racism, apparently supported by Brearley, that uh, that educational, professional, or other societal outcome where blacks are underrepresented is prima facie evidence of the aforementioned systemic racism or of white supremacy and oppression. He says, facile and unsupported beliefs such as these are the polar opposite to the intellectual and scientific truth for which Brearley claims to stand. And furthermore, he says, I call BS on Brearley's oft-stated assertion that the school welcomes and encourages the truly difficult and uncomfortable conversations regarding race and the roots of racial discrepancies. He says, I object to the idea that blacks are unable to succeed in this country without aid from government or from whites. Brearley, by adopting critical race theory, is advocating the abhorrent viewpoint That blacks should forever be regarded as helpless victims and are incapable of success regardless of their skills, talents, or hard work. What Brearley is teaching our children is precisely the true and correct definition of racism. And he says, I object to mandatory anti-racism training for parents, especially when presented by the rent-seeking charlatans of Pollyanna. These sessions, both in their content and delivery, are so sophomoric and simplistic, so unsophisticated and inane, that I would be embarrassed if they were taught to Brearley kindergartners. They are an insult to parents and unbecoming of any educational institution, let alone one of Brearley's caliber. He says I object to Brearley's vacuous, inappropriate, and, and fanatical use of words such as equity, diversity, and inclusiveness. If Brearley's administration was truly concerned about so called equity, it would be discussing the cessation of admissions preferences for legacies, siblings, and families with especially deep pockets. Ooh, this is hitting them where they hurt. He says if the administration was genuinely serious about diversity, it would not insist on the indoctrination of its students and their families to a single mindset, most reminiscent of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Instead, the school would foster an environment of intellectual openness and freedom of thought. And if Brearley really cared about inclusiveness, the school would return to the concepts encapsulated in the motto, One Brearley, instead of teaching the extraordinarily divisive idea that there are only and always two groups in this country, victims and oppressors. What do you think? He's not exactly holding back, is he? We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. Again, this is a letter from a parent by the name of Andrew Gutman, to the Brearley School, a very elite school on Manhattan's Upper East Side. And as a parent, he has simply had enough of the critical race theory and wokeness indoctrination. I think this is a good model for other parents.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program
1: brought to you in part today by HSLammo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and Pure Light. It's pure-light.com, the makers of these phenomenal LED light bulbs that are revolutionizing light bulbs. They're actually making all the other light bulbs obsolete. There are links in the show notes at the thebryanhideshow.com where you can contact any of these uh, sponsors. Also, you will find links to the story that I'm sharing with you from Barry Weiss. This is from her Substack uh, column. And it's about a letter from a parent of a child who attends Brearley School in Manhattan. This is a very expensive school, $54,000 a year. I mean, they have waiting lists. They they are very, very elite, but they are also very woke. And Andrew Gutman, this this father, has outlined and sent a letter to all the other parents, 600-some parents, outlining some of his reasons why he finds this woke classroom intolerable for his kids. And if you were listening in the last segment, you've heard he's he's... I think he lays it out about as well as it can be said. He goes on to say, I object to Brearley's advocacy for groups and movements such as Black Lives Matter, a Marxist, anti-family, heterophobic, anti-Asian, and anti-Semitic organization that neither speaks for the majority of the black community in this country nor in any way, shape, or form represents their best interests. He says, I object to, as we've been told time and time again over the past year, that the school's first priority is the safety of our children. He says, for goodness sake, Brearley is a school, not a hospital. The number one priority of a school has always been and will always be education. Brearley's misguided priorities exemplify both the safety culture and the cover-your-ass culture that together have proved so toxic to our society and have so damaged the mental health and resiliency of two generations of children and counting. He says, I object to the gutting of the history, civics, and classical literature curriculums. I object to the censorship of books that have been taught for generations because they contain dated language potentially offensive to the thin skinned and hypersensitive. By the way, he says that's something that's already happened in his daughter's fourth grade class. He says, I object to the lowering of standards for the admission of students and for the hiring of teachers. I object to the erosion of rigor in classwork and escalation of grade inflation. Any parent with eyes can foresee these inevitabilities. Should should anti-racism initiatives be allowed to persist? He says, we have today in our country, from both political parties and at all levels of government, the most unwise and unvirtuous leaders in our nation's history. Schools like Brearley are supposed to be the training grounds for those leaders. Our nation will not survive a generation of leadership even more poorly educated than we have now, nor will we survive a generation of students taught to hate its own country and despise its history. Lastly, he says, I object with as strong a sentiment as possible that Brearley has begun to teach what to think instead of how to think. I object that the school is now fostering an environment where our daughters and our daughter's teachers are afraid to speak their minds in class for fear of consequences. I object that Brearley is trying to usurp the role of parents in teaching morality and bullying parents to, to adopt that false morality rather at home. I object that Brearley is fostering a divisive community with families of different races, which until recently were part of the same community and are now segregated into two. These are the reasons why we can no longer send our daughter to Breerly. Over the past several months, he says, I've personally spoken to many Breerly parents as well as parents of children at peer institutions, and it's abundantly clear that the majority of parents believe Breerly's anti-racism policies are misguided, divisive, counterproductive, and cancerous. Many believe, as I do, that these policies will ultimately destroy what was until recently a wonderful educational institution, But as I'm sure will come as no surprise to you, given the insidious cancel culture that has of late permeated our society, most parents are too fearful to speak up. But he says, speak up, you must. There is strength in numbers, and I assure you, the numbers are there. Contact the administration and the Board of Trustees and demand an end to the destructive and anti-intellectual claptrap known as anti-racism. And if charges are not forthcoming... Changes rather are not forthcoming than demand new leadership for the sake of our community, our city, our country, and most of all our children. Silence is no longer an option. respectfully Andrew Gutman I mean that makes that makes me want to buy that guy a drink. I think he says it respectfully but firmly, and he's saying what I think a lot of people have 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 had go through their minds but may not have the courage. To say. By the way, as a follow-up to this, I want to share with you also a column from Carrie McDonald. She writes for the Future of Freedom, edu- uh, fu- let's try that again, the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Hello. And she talks about this article as well. But she also has some other suggestions for parents and teachers who've had enough of the woke classrooms and critical race theory and have decided they are going to push back. She says, here's what we can do to empower them. Now, she gives some excerpts from uh, the the letter that I just shared with you. But here's what others have had to say. She says, in an article last month, oh, actually, let me go back one step here. Uh, head School's headmaster responded to the letter. Can you guess what the response was? Yes, say it with me. The letter was deeply offensive and harmful. How dare you question this? Okay, that last part was me, but you get the impression here that, uh, yeah, how, how dare a mere parent forking over fifty plus thousand dollars a year for their kid to be educated? How dare they question this? But Kerry points out more parents are coming forward to speak up against these initiatives that are rooted in critical race theory, the push to view social and cultural issues through the lens of racial identity and, in particular, power structures related to that identity. Now, in an article last month at City Journal, Barry Weiss described many of the parents who've come forward from prestigious private schools in major cities to criticize what they see as an indoctrination of their children into the leftist ideology of wokeism. In an article last week, we shared that letter that we just shared with you here on the program at one of, the, one of these prep schools that where parents no longer willing to be silent about this ongoing indoctrination of students. Then she quotes, uh, Carrie quotes a, a math teacher by the name of Paul Rossi, who teaches at the posh Grace Church High School in New York City. He says, As a teacher, my first obligation is to my students. But right now, my school is asking me to embrace anti-racism training and pedagogy that I believe is deeply harmful to them and to any person who seeks to nurture the virtues of curiosity, empathy, and understanding. Rossi says, Anti-racist training sounds righteous, But it is the opposite of truth in advertising. It requires teachers like myself to treat students differently on the basis of race. Grace Church High School made headlines in March for releasing an inclusive language guide that, among other recommendations, urged the school community to become more welcoming and inclusive by avoiding words such as mom and dad, parents or boys and girls. This is one of the complaints I've had against cultural Marxism for a long time. is You, you can know that you're dealing with a, a culturally Marxist ideology when it requires you, doesn't persuade you, but requires you to detach from reality. No one is allowed to question whether or not men can give birth or can menstruate. No one is allowed to question whether, you know, the traditional nuclear family of a, a, a husband and wife together raising their children, you know, in a lifelong commitment has, has actually been, you know, the, the pattern for most of human history. Some would say all. I'm trying to be generous here. But yeah cultural Marxism and, and the wokeness that has resulted from it absolutely says you cannot believe these things. You, you, a person who looks at you, a six-foot-tall guy with a, with a really deep voice who says to you, I identify as a five-year-old girl. If you want to be woke, if you want to be inclusive, you've got to indulge him. You cannot question. Since when... Does being polite mean, uh, by the way, you are now drafted into everybody else's fantasy? I'm just wondering.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show.
1: I feel like I'm pushing some hot buttons today, and my goal really isn't to make you angry, but I feel like if we don't speak up now, there's going to come a point where it's just not going to be an option. Speaking up will no longer be an option because we are so beaten down by the prevailing ideologies. So when we talk about uh, things like uh, the woke classroom and critical race theory, I am very much of the opinion that this is not about correcting an actual wrong. It's about creating a new wrong that fits a particular political ideology that someone else wants to impose on everybody. And I mean impose it by force. So when parents and educators feel emboldened to speak out against this rising tide of wokeism in their children's schools, Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education says, this offers opportunities for change. Now, she says some of that change might come from schools reining in their woke rhetoric if enough parents object. But she says much of the change will likely come from parents opting out of these private schools for other options. As more independent schools realize, hey, there's a market out there for focusing strictly on teaching and learning without political indoctrination. They'll be able to differentiate themselves from schools seeped in critical race theory. She says, similarly, more parent demand for alternatives to woke education will lead to more entrepreneurial efforts to build new learning models that focus on individual development over group affiliation. That's opportunity knocking. She actually includes a tweet from Pedro Domingos. The demand for non-woke education is skyrocketing. Who will meet it? That's got to inspire somebody. Carrie McDonald says she recently received an email from an Asian mother whose child attends a private school in the Boston area and who is fed up with the school trying to brainwash kids. This mother said the social pressure to conform with what the schools define as moral compass is enormous and exhausting. The underground chattering is bubbling and I wonder where the parents would ultimately draw the line and declare enough is enough. I personally feel time may be ripe for the more innovative and balanced models to challenge the status quo of the existing learning institutions, end quote. Now, the demand for non-woke education truly is skyrocketing, and it uh, represents a moment ripe for creative destruction in the education sector. The term creative destruction was popularized by economist Joseph Schumpeter in his 1942 book, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And it describes the dynamic process of new business models and organizations replacing outdated or inadequate enterprises. He explained that capitalism is the perennial gale of creative destruction fueled by entrepreneurship and innovation. By the way, there was an interesting tweet included in this article. This is from Tim Urban. And it says, For people with either the time or money, the time, the move might just be to homeschool your kids and try your best to teach them to be curious, independent-minded, first-principles thinkers with integrity and courage. Then send them off into the world at 18. They'll be fine without college. I know that's, that makes a few people, Whoa, how, how are they going to succeed? Well, they'll start by thinking for themselves, rather than just being a little uh, group of slogan-repeating automatons. Kerry asks, what about public schools, though? Parents' demand may spur the private sector to offer alternatives to woke education through free market capitalism, but what about the children forced to attend government schools that are much less responsive to market signals? Like many elite private schools, public schools also are embracing woke ideology at alarming rates. In February, Illinois legislators voted in favor of enacting new culturally responsive teaching and leading standards in the state's teacher education programs. Now, these programs must begin to reflect the new standards that focus on systems of oppression. Illinois teachers in training will be expected to explore their own intersecting identities and become aware of the effects of power and privilege and the need for social advocacy and social action to better empower diverse students and communities. Around the same time the Illinois Standards were passed, a group of educators released a document criticizing objective math education as being racist and called for dismantling white supremacy in math classrooms by, visi- by visibilizing, their word, the toxic characteristics of white supremacy culture with respect to math. That's a lot of word salad there, but... Uh, I don't know, that was one of the things I loved about math was it's pretty tough to politicize. You know, you, you do the problem and it's either right or it's wrong. But states like Oregon seem to be taking note. And last month, Kerry reports, the California Board of Education passed an ethnic study curriculum for K-12 students that focuses primarily on four ethnic groups, including African Americans, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders, Latino Americans, and Native Americans. So, while the new statewide ethnic studies curriculum is not a high school graduation mandate, as California legislators and the state teachers union originally proposed before Governor Newsom vetoed the bill last fall, the new school curriculum emphasizes group identity over individualism. This kind of brings me back to something that uh, I think I've been saying for a year or two, and that is it really comes down to the collective versus the individual. Anytime someone is going off on, you know, inclusive this and, and uh, you know, identity politics that or, you know, uh, intersectionality and critical race theory, they are engaging in collectivism. Judging people by what collective group they believe they, they best fit in. As opposed to evaluating a person based on their individual merits and character. We're not supposed to notice this, but somehow we do. Now, ahead of the governor's veto, the Wall Street Journal editorial board wrote about California's proposed ethnic study curriculum, saying this is ugly stuff, a force feeding to teenagers of the anti-liberal theories that have been percolating in campus critical studies departments for decades. Enforced identity politics and intersectionality are, are on their way to replacing civic nationalism as America's creed. Carrie McDonald says many parents may disagree with the woke ideology their children are exposed to in schools, or they may simply prefer that these schools focus on academics rather than activism. But too many families have too few options beyond a mandatory public school assignment. Expanding education choice policies, as more than two dozen states are currently attempting to do, will enable more families to choose their preferred educational setting. Private school parents are courageously pushing back against the ideology of wokeism that's invading their children's schools. And they're using their resources to find or build different learning models. Education choice policies will allow public school parents the same opportunity of exit and innovation. Ooh, that's a couple of words that just scare the tar out of uh, people with a controlling nature. And yet something says to me that's, that's probably a good thing. So, I don't know what the line in the sand would be for you, whether it's for your kids or for your grandkids, but if you're a person who takes seriously concepts like individual liberty, freedom of conscience, equality before the law, this is something you're going to have to suss out for yourself and, and figure out to where, where that line would be. Which brings us to the place where I think a lot of us are, are, are wondering, okay, will I have courage in the face of of tyranny. I mean if you've ever wanted to have a better grasp of what that means, just uh, you know, try to remain openly committed to the truth in our day. That's enough to bring some very serious criticism your way if not condemnation, might even bring the whole cancel culture mob out to get you. Ah, that would have sounded so paranoid even just a few years ago. And yet it's the reality today. The stuff that people are getting canceled for, for crying out loud, I'm still reeling from the idea that there are are people who are losing their jobs because someone hacked into a a donation software company and discovered that, hey, Kyle Rittenhouse, this is the uh, young man who shot a couple of rioters that were trying to kill him in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year, he is still awaiting trial, but uh, they have raised money for his legal defense, and People who contributed to him, and we're talking like $10 contributions, are being doxed. They're losing their jobs. They're suspended without pay as their work investigates. Why did this person, you know, send a, a donation? And you can say, well, if they use their work email, don't give me that crap. People have been sharing truly offensive things on work email for a long time. But this, this is a different kind of punishment and i don't know what to make of it other than that someone is very intent to send the message that no matter what we will find you and punish you for thinking differently i'm not saying you have to believe kyle rittenhouse is absolutely innocent i'm just saying the presumption of innocence is part of our basis of our system of law and if you you know feel like well gee somebody contributing to a person's legal defense in order that that presumption of innocence, you know, can, can be maintained until such time as they've been given due process in an actual trial. I mean, what, is it, what does that say? Is this, is this uh, do, do, do the facts no longer matter? Are we just, you know, all about, to, hey, justice is whatever makes the mob feel validated, man. Because <laughs> I, I feel like we're approaching that and probably a lot quicker than we think. When we come back, I'm going to share with you a couple of different uh, columns here. One from Jeff Minnick about courage in the face of tyranny. If you haven't seen A Man for All Seasons, I strongly recommend it. Also talk about uh, how a strong vision, along with some struggle, can result in a stronger family.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to share with you a
1: little column I found on intellectualtakeout.org. If you're not uh, at least dropping by there once in a while to see what they have posted up in terms of uh, different columns from different contributors, you're missing out. It's really some remarkable stuff. Jeff Minnick is a regular contributor, and he has a recent column called Courage in the Face of Tyranny. A Man for All Seasons, he says, is a film for our time. In this classic period drama, Sir Thomas More, played by Paul Schofield, a brilliant writer and intellectual and former Lord Chancellor of England, refuses to approve Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn, rejects his decision to break with Rome and recognize the king as the supreme head of the Church of England. And though he seeks refuge in English law, More is eventually imprisoned, tried for treason, and executed. Now, what the movie doesn't show are the events that occurred in the years following Moore's death, the dissolution of the monasteries with the monarchs selling off monastic lands and buildings, alterations to the liturgy, demands that bishops and priests renounce their allegiance to Rome and join the English Church, and the various rebellions against these policies which followed. A century later, these upheavals culminated in a bloody civil war. In other words, England's Catholic culture and the Catholic Church in England underwent what we today would call cancel culture— and more than a few hardy souls like Thomas More who were standing in the way found themselves imprisoned or executed. Jeff Minnick says More was a man of conscience who could not approve a proposition he knew to be false. He saw through Henry's machinations, his lust and desire for a son in divorcing his first wife and marrying Anne, and More refused to accept the king's wishes as a valid premise for cutting ties with Rome. He also understood the dire consequences for repudiating the king's demands. In a scene where Moore is discussing his ordeal with his friend, the Duke of Norfolk, Moore gives us the central reason for this refusal. The Duke of Norfolk says, Oh, confound all this. I'm not a scholar. I don't know whether the marriage was lawful or not, but Thomas, look at these names. Why don't you do as I did and come with us for fellowship? Moore's response, And when we die and you were sent to heaven for doing your conscience, and I am sent to hell for not doing mine, will you come with me for fellowship? BAM! (laughs) Jeff Minnick says, Others who love Moore and want him to live, his wife, his beloved daughter, a son-in-law, and friends, also pressure him to give way and obey the king, but Moore's moral compass prevents him from doing so. At the end of his trial, a procedure foreshadowing the show trials of 20th century communists, Moore further explains himself. I am the king's true subject, and I pray for him and all the realm. I do none harm. I say none harm. I think none harm. And if this be not enough to keep a man alive, then in good faith I long not to live. Now today, some demand, as did Henry and his government ministers, that we go along with their attempts to tear down a culture beloved and dear to many of us. If we condone this demolition, we will, like the Duke of Norfolk, be welcomed into the ranks of the cancel culture crew for fellowship. If we refuse to join them, if we fight back instead against this destruction, we will be executed, not like Thomas More by axe and chopping block, but by our digital gallows and guillotines, by doxing, by being banned from social media, and by being deplatformed, as has happened to intellectual takeout and other outfits. And so, he says, we have a choice. We can join the gang of radicals now running rampant in our country. We can keep our mouths shut, close our eyes, and pretend as if nothing is wrong, or... We can fight back against the madness, knowing full well that like Thomas More, we may well lose the war. In his conflict with King Henry VIII, Thomas More believed that he had one unbeatable ally, God. Many of us today also believe in that higher power. Other Americans may not cast their eyes heavenward, yet may still take comfort and courage from our Bill of Rights and natural law. For these are rights granted by no government, but guaranteed to us by dint of our humanity. In laying out his case to his daughter, Margaret, Moore argues for using the law as a weapon in his defense, but he adds these words, if he, meaning God, suffers us to come to such a case that there is no escaping, then we may stand to our tackle as best we can, and yes, Meg, then we can clamor like champions if we have the spittle for it. Jeff Minick says, how about those of us living through these crazy times? If we come to the place where there is no escaping, how will we react will we have the backbone and courage as Sir Thomas More did to resist falsehood and oppression? I mean, I can't answer for you. You can't answer for me, but I think that's a question that's well worth asking before you find yourself standing at that crossroad. All right. One final article. This also from intellectual takeout. This is from uh, Annie Holmquist. Raising a strong family requires a strong vision. I thought this was really fascinating because, it, it, it poses the question, why do the children of immigrants regularly excel in their pursuit of success when compared to their non-immigrant counterparts? Well, this is what uh, Annie's article says. She says, in a recent article published by the Institute for Family Studies, family physician Leonard Sachs makes the interesting observation that children of immigrants are excelling in academic pursuits. Sachs cites recent Scripps spelling bee champions and other high-profile competition winners as evidence noting that in one study, 33 out of 40 finalists in a recent science talent search were the children of immigrants. Now, that's a big deal, Sachs writes, because it's a recent development. Traditionally, the children of immigrants were more likely to struggle. And Sachs explains how during his own doctorate training, he was taught immigrant status was a predictor of bad outcomes for children. So why the change? Well, Sachs suggests there are three things enabling the children of immigrants to succeed at a greater rate than their non-immigrant counterparts. The first is that immigrants have stronger families due to fewer instances of divorce and single parenthood, as well as better support systems through extended relatives. The second is that immigrant families are less immersed in the American culture of disrespect, where children scoff at their parents and their ideas. And finally, immigrant families are less likely to practice permissive parenting, a setup where the kids end up ruling the roost rather than dad or mom. Now, she says Sachs makes some very fine points, but Annie Holmquist also wonders if there's something else that immigrant families give their children that many American-born parents lack. The late author and professor Alan Bloom suggests that element is vision. She says many American homes, even those decently functioning ones with two parents, Bloom writes in The Closing of the American Mind, have nothing to give their children in way of, the, of a vision of the world of high models of action, or a profound sense of connection with others. Family is the form of government that lays the foundation for a child's worldview. Bloom writes, "...the family per- requires the most delicate mixture of nature and convention, of human and divine. To subsist and to perform its function, its, its base is m- merely bodily reproduction, but its purpose is the formation of civilized human beings." In teaching a language and providing names for all things, it transmits an interpretation of the order of the whole of things. Annie Holmquist says, What exactly should this formation of civilized human beings involve? Well, morality, for starters. Bloom explains that parents need to teach what is right and what is wrong. To do so requires knowledge. Not only about the ways of heavens and of men, but also about the past in order to resist the philistinism or wickedness of the present. Bloom also lists rituals and traditions as important parts of forming young human beings. He says, Ritual and ceremony are now often said to be necessary for the family and what they are now lacking. The family, however, has to be a sacred unity believing in the permanence of what it teaches if its ritual and ceremony are to express and transmit the wonder of the moral law which it alone is capable of transmitting and which makes it special in a world devoted to the humanly all too humanly useful. When that belief disappears, as it has, the family has at best a transitory togetherness. People sup together, play together, travel together, but they do not think together. End quote. Annie Holmquist says, Consider these points of morality, knowledge, ritual, rather, and tradition. Many of today's parents raised in an America fast-embracing relativism and rejecting religion have never learned the knowledge of the past or had stable families with traditions and rituals that they can pass along to their own children. Immigrant families, however, often bring with them the knowledge, rituals, and traditions of their home country. Some immigrant groups are also profoundly religious and therefore have a code of morality in place. In essence, they have a vision and a worldview to pass along to their children. Many Americans do not. So how can we work to help children of native-born American parents do just as well as those of parents who've come to our shores only recently? Well, Annie says the answer seems simple. Return to the old paths. Take your children to church. Read scripture and other books with them, making sure that both parents and children learn together. Make traditions and create family rituals. She says children may roll their eyes at them, but deep down they would be devastated if their family habits and patterns disappeared. That's one I'm going to have to be thinking about for the next next couple of days. But I think she's onto something here. So if you're wondering, well, where can I exercise my influence? Right now, there's a lot of stuff that's just completely beyond our control. My suggestion is spend less time obsessing over that and more time focusing on what's taking place in the walls of your home you probably have more influence than you realize. Now let's get out there and use it to great effect.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.